Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Okasanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. I am really excited about my guest today. Larry Suedro is the Chief Research Officer at Buckingham, a US-based firm with over 60 billion of assets under advisement. Larry has authored uh, 10 books and co-authored seven more. And over the last two decades or so, he has spent his time, his talent and energy educating investors on the benefits of evidence-based investing. His latest book, which he co-authored with Sam Adams, is titled Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing, How to Live Your Values and Achieve Your Financial Goals with ESG, SRI, and Impact Investing. Larry, welcome to Retirementals. Thank you for having me, Abraham. Pleasure to be with you. Larry, I am really thrilled to have you on the podcast. You've been a voice of reason. You've been uh, an incredible voice in the investing uh, world, especially as it relates to the uh, evidence-based investing side of things. Give us a little bit of the background to uh, your, your latest book, which sits at the intersection of evidence-based investing and sustainable investing. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I relate the development of ESG, sustainable investing, impact investing. We provide definitions in the book to what happened in the world of passive investing or indexing. So indexing really began in the 70s with John Bogle's first public fund for Vanguard, and it was a very slow adoption, maybe even at the most 1% a year for 20 years. It wasn't even that much. And then around the year 2000, uh, you started to see a big change and then a massive inflow. And today we're sitting where roughly around the world, you're 50% passive or index type investing. So you saw a big shift there. Sustainable investing has been, or ESG or SRI in whatever format, has been around literally for thousands of years, if you will. Certainly in the US with the Quakers who wouldn't invest in things related to guns or slavery, things like that, that's hundreds of years. But it really didn't take off until around 2005 when the, you had the Paris Agreements started to come in that term used. And then in, I think whatever the year the Paris Accords came, it was 16, 17, 18. Then you saw the shift move from about 1% a year uh, was coming into sustainable. And then uh, probably combined with the big events we've had on the climate with global warming leading to hurricane increases and other risks, we saw a massive shift to tens of billions a month flowing in from very slow trickle to a flood. And then we started getting lots of requests from uh, our clients to learn more about sustainable investing and how it could be implemented uh, in the way that doesn't maybe harm their returns. Uh, And so they get to express their values and reach their goals. And when you get those kind of cash flows, of course, the academic community begins to take notice and they started writing papers. Uh, and when I sat down to write my book, I decided, you know, yeah, we need a book on the subject. And the book covers about five dozen academic papers showing what the empirical uh, evidence is, not Larry Swedro or anyone else's opinions. So like with all my books, it's filled with tons of footnotes citing the literature so that people can make informed decisions uh, to help them decide some people, for example, would be willing to sacrifice returns to express their goals and other people might be willing to do that, but to some degree, 
Maybe if it's 1%, I'll say yes. If it's 3%, I'll say no. Uh, but there are no right answers. And so we wanted to give everybody uh, the information to make those decisions. I'll add one other point. So uh, the book kind of goes through the whole history of the movement in the first several chapters, the progression from SRI to ESG to sustainable and impact investing. We then talk about the academic research on the risk and returns uh, of ESG investing. Uh, and then we talk about how it's actually changing corporate behavior, uh, which is a really important uh, point. And then we show people what they can do to implement their values uh, should they decide to do so. So I'm going to, I'm going to uh, pick on some of these, uh, you know, some of the, the topics. I, I absolutely recommend everyone to, 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 to read the book. I've got a copy and, I, I, you know, I've given a copy to a couple of my colleagues. Now, so we, we, first of all, we tend to use these terms, SRI, ESG, impact investing, interchangeably, but in the book, you you define them and you broke them down. Can you just summarize for us, um, you know, the differences between or the difference between these, uh, you know, the, these terms? Yeah. So I think the best way to do that is to begin with what would be called socially responsible investing. So people generally think of these as the sin industries. In fact, they used to be called sin stocks: tobacco, right. alcohol, gambling. Some people would add pornography, then others add defense or guns. It's all your personal values. Uh, certainly, for example, you see evidence of examples uh, when the boycott of South Africa to try to end apartheid as another example of SRI investing. So that's all values driven. ESG expanded it to now look at the environment, not just socially responsible, but also governance, how employees were treated, uh, equality of gender and race and all kinds of other issues uh, there. And then sustainable investing is a much broader term that includes even what's called impact investing, where impact investing pretty much says, I don't care too much about the returns I want to create an impact in the community. So for example, there may be a village in Africa that doesn't have fresh water. So you're going to fund a loan to a company that's going to put wells in and maybe it's then sustainable and you have entrepreneurs running businesses. And, but if they don't get their return, that's okay. The primary objective is not to generate returns. The broader category then includes all of these things and allows people to combine their values and the issues of risk and return. Uh, so again, it depends upon your own values and how you want to express them. So, so that's interesting. So uh, I, I understand the, the SRI side of things. You, you're excluding you know, things from, from the portfolio that you do. Yeah, want. that's really an exclusionary term, uh, Abraham. That's the best way to think of it. We just will not invest in anything that includes those industries, period. We don't invest. That's one way. We talk about the book where sustainable investing, you can do that and have exclusions, but you also can instead, and I think that's the better choice, but it's again, personal issues, uh, to have a best in class approach. So let me explain why this is a really important point. Some people have uh, so an ESG perspective say, we wanna screen out all the energy companies that are focused on carbon-based products. So anyone who's taking oil out of the ground, okay? Companies like Exxon and Total Petroleum out of France. We will just exclude them. Another approach which I think is superior is to take a best-in-class approach. So you rate a company on how its ESG score compares to its competitors. And the reason why I think that's better is very simple. If you don't buy the stock of say mobile oil, you don't affect their profits by that decision, 
but you do affect their cost of capital because their PE ratio will be lower if lots of people do that, right? If you have a lower PE ratio, your cost of capital is higher. You also, people won't buy their debt, so their interest costs will be higher. Now, if you would give them a higher cost of capital, that's a way to penalize them, and then they don't have as much money to invest, right? Pretty simple. Their hurdle rate to make an investment is higher. But here's the problem. Guess who are the largest holders of green patents in the world innovating these changes because they know what's coming? It's the companies like Total Petroleum and Exxon. So if you starve them a capital, they will not be able to innovate. So that to me doesn't make sense. You want to reward the companies in the oil and gas industry who are making those transitions and invest in them and then exclude the ones that are the bad players, if you will, and don't have good governance, good risk controls, end up with oil spills or things like that. So a best-in-class approach, which we also discuss in the book, can be another way to address it. I think that's the more economically logical way to do it. Uh, but if your values say, I just don't want to invest in any company that's taken oil out of ground, that's your personal choice. But you should recognize that you're actually damaging your own cause by doing so. That, that's very interesting. So I want to pick on this idea then that, you know, that you should, you know, this idea of investing in best in class. So let's say we start with, say, the, the S&P 500, for instance you apply some sort of ESG scoring, environmental, um, social governance scoring to these companies, and you would, I'm, I'm assuming an index, you know, an index provider would do this, or an asset manager would do this. You would basically wait or allocate more to companies who score higher um, in the, you know, on the ESG criteria and maybe exclude or underweight those who's called lower. Is that, is that broadly? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, just so people understand, one of the problems, and we talk about this in the book in great length, I don't know if, any, if this is actually visible, but I think so. Here's a picture of the scores of companies here uh, that are big names in the industry uh, Facebook, Wells Fargo, Johnson & Johnson, J.P. Morgan & Chase, uh, Walmart, Pfizer. It's, you know, from the book uh, here. And what we show is there are seven major providers. Now, they rate scores uh, of companies uh, in their own unique way. And this is really important because of what I'll describe. If you look at a corporate bond rating and you want to make a decision, you want to invest in say only double A or better credits, you don't have to look at S&P, Moody's and Fitch really because the odds are about 99% they'll be identical because they're looking at the same data. So if you look at one, they're almost certainly going to be the same. The ESG providers, there is no systematic, defined way to do it. So let's talk about some examples. So if we look at your rating a company in ESG, somebody, and I'm just making this up as a hypothetical to help people understand, if you could say, I'm gonna give one third of the score to the environmental score, one third to the socially responsible, and one third to corporate governance. Somebody else could say, we're going to give 70% to the environment, 20% to social, 10% to government. Then you have, even within the E section, let's say, you have what are called, and we describe this in detail in the book, scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Scope one are the emissions that you produce directly in your product. Scope two, looks at the inputs that go into your product before it gets to you. And scope three is until it gets to the consumer. Now, most companies don't even report scope three, so there are problems in getting the data. So let's say 
you're uh, one of the Raiders, I'm making this up again, a company called Sustain Analytics. They use scope two emissions and somebody else uses scope one because the scope one and two because they're available. Uh, and so now you get completely different answers. And as you saw in that chart, you have the same company can have very different scores there. And then you look at social. You could say, how, how do we define you know, their, uh, their, how they deal with employees? So let's use, say, women uh, uh, as the issue they're looking at. Do they look at the pay gap in similar jobs? Do they look at the number of women on the boards? Do they look at the number of women managers? Same thing for any minority. You could, there's different ways and there's no right answer. Someone could look at all three of those things and create a blended score, right? So you end up with seven different companies using very different ratings, which makes it difficult, one, for investors, because, and your values may be expressed differently than the raters. And number two uh, is that the researchers have problems because you could do a study on risk and return, but if they're using different benchmarks, because someone uses one rating system versus the other. So we try to address all these issues in the book and ultimately people are gonna to have to make a decision. There's no gonna, not gonna be any perfect one answer here until or unless the accounting standard boards rule and come out with, here's what we think is a good system and everyone should use it. The seven providers are not likely to do that because they're all claiming, of course, theirs is the best and you should use ours and the competition. So there's not gonna be a perfect answer. Uh, you, you're gonna to have to live with say, I'm going to use Morningstar's rating and I'll live with that and I'll, I can review how they do it. And if I'm mostly in agreement, that'll be okay. Or you could compare different ratings. So that's something that everyone's going to have to decide, but it is a complexity being added to the issue. So, so in effect, as opposed to um, SRI where the investment is really you're you're aligning the investment or trying to align the investment with your own personal individual values with ESG really you're leaving this to in effect the rating agency and indeed the, the investment manager to decide what E means and what S means. Well you could do it yourself. You could decide what you want. Uh, and create your own now individual portfolios. Now with the advent of this definance industry uh, and the cost of creating your own portfolios has come way down. We use two firms for our clients, Parametrics and Aperio, to build individual portfolios. And you know, 20 years ago, you needed five or 10 million. Now a few hundred thousand is sufficient and you can create your own values. But then you have to decide, you're, either you have to do the research on that company or you have to pick one provider and say, I'm gonna look at their score because I believe their values and how they do it most closely express with mine. So for example, I'll just make this up. Uh, say you wanna be an SRI, an exclusionary one. So you want to exclude the traditional sin stocks of tobacco, alcohol, and gambling, but you want to add pornography. Or somebody else says, I, you know, I like to gamble. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So I want to screen out the others, but I'll leave in casinos, right? So again, no right answer, which does, you know, make it a unique situation for each person and, and their decisions about what they're going to do. I'll add one other thing. The more restrictive you are in screening out companies or industries, the less diversified your portfolio will be. And if you do screen out whole industries, you know, the academic literature and the theory aligns here, you do create a more risky portfolio because you're not as well diversified. So that's something also people need to think about. Now, a word from our sponsor. 
Nikki Heating Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Typical model portfolio service costs about 36 basis points. That's in addition to the funds, the platform, you know, the advice fees. Tell us a bit about Betafolio's view and approach on fees. Well, I don't think anyone that knows us already, Abraham, would be surprised to hear me say that in a nutshell, NPS fees are too high. Um, if you include the fund charges and the platform fee that you already talked about, we get close to 1%, I think, on average for a lot of retail clients. And that's before they start paying for the financial plan, which is the part of the service that will ultimately add the most value for them in their advisor relationship and experience. Um, so, I mean, my view on fees and Betafolio's view on fees is that they have a real impact on client outcomes that needs attention. Um, and that's why we're building a scalable solution with technology that will allow us to keep costs low. And I think we also should consider the impact of these fees on advisors' businesses too. Advisors need to, to make a profit from, from their work. They need to have a viable business. And their cost bases have been rising because of regulation. And the, the more cost they have to pass through to their clients for overcomplicated services, in, in turn puts pressure on the advisor's own fees and, and ultimately makes it not possible for them to, to run a, a good business. So fees are really crucial. Um, and I'm really happy that we're in a position to be having a positive influence on the, the trends in the market. Good stuff. Thank you, Nikki. So a couple of things I want to, I want to go further on this. All right. So, uh, and by the way, just for the purpose of our listeners, um, uh, Larry was talking about direct indexing there when you said DI, I just wanted to clarify that. Um, so. Is this actually making any impact in the real world? You talked about the idea that it touches the cost of capital of the companies. But, and I want you to help unpack that a little bit. But before you do think about this, we were talking about individual investors uh, finding some ways to express individual preferences, right? Individual values. And then um, on top of that, each rating agencies have their own different ratings, right? Does this actually, you know, you know, one individual underweighting or excluding one company from their, uh, their portfolio, which the next individual might actually hold, but does this actually make any impact in the real world? What does the research say about um whether ESG or sustainable investing actually changes behavior um, of of uh, yeah so let's uh, let's begin with the economic theory here again um, so let's say you have a group let's just make an example up here that all stocks trade at a PE of say 15 okay that's not real world but that's our base case. Now you get whole groups of investors who decide, I do not want to own these sin stocks or brown companies who are polluting. Okay. So now what happens is they don't buy that stock, but somebody, you know, they may even own them in their portfolios and then they sell them. That somebody has to buy them, right? Because all stocks are owned by somebody. The, the people who might buy them, number one, are going to say, hey, no one, a lot of people don't want to own this stock. They are more risky, and we'll talk about that. You have the risks of, for example, lawsuits, uh, boycotts by consumers against your product, environmental spills. If you don't have good governance, you have more risk of frauds, for example. Uh, we even write about that in the book. Uh, so they, these stocks are more risky. You have the risk of regulations 
say, wiping out the coal industry, right? So if someone's going to say, I'm going to own these brown or sin stocks, one, I'm going to have to hold my nose, uh, and two, I'm going to have to take more risk. So they're going to demand a risk premium. The good scoring companies will be safer. They, in fact, have less tail risk. They have less risk of these environmental uh, disasters, less risk of consumer boycotts, less risk of fraud. So now their PEs get bid up and say now their PEs go to 20 and the brown stocks go to 10. Well, you didn't change the earnings of the companies here, you just changed their prices. So now the expected returns are much higher when you only pay 10 times a dollar of earnings. So your expected return is 10%. You're paying 20 times earnings, your expected return is 5%. Now think about you, Abraham, as the chairman of the board of a company who's got in the energy sector, let's say, and you've got a PE of 10, and you see this other company called Total Petroleum out of France. They are one of the leaders in investing in green technology, green patents. They have said, we're going to exploit the oil we have, but we're not going to put another dollar into development. We're going to move in a transition to green, solar, nuclear, wind, etc. And we're going to, and there, the market says, based on the people who do best in class, they're trading maybe at a 14 PE. Still some discount maybe because some people exclude them. So you're trading at a 10, you say, oh my God, I'm paying more for my debt. I have to pay more for my equity. I better change my behavior or I'll be at a competitive disadvantage. I won't be able to invest capital because I've got a much higher hurdle rate than the other investor, right? So that's uh, what is actually happening. Uh, corporate executives are observing their higher costs of capital, changing their behaviors so they can drive cash flows into their stocks by mutual funds of investors directly. And we're seeing this movement uh, in effect creating a virtuous circle by screening out the, or penalizing uh, through lack of cash flows, the poor scoring companies, those companies are now being forced to focus on their behaviors, changing them, and the good ones are trying to get better all the time. We have a whole chapter in the book dedicated to this. I'll add one other interesting thing. Think about this, particularly among the younger generation, millennials and others, they want to work for companies that express their values. Uh, and so if you want to get and attract talented employees and keep them, you better have a good ESG score or you won't likely be able to keep, retain, attract that talent. And it turns out that when you have higher employee satisfaction, and we know that employees through surveys uh, who uh, are working for companies that express their values are more satisfied. Well, the research shows that companies that have more satisfied employees, no big shock, have higher productivity, higher profitability, and therefore higher stock returns. So in effect, you could see how the whole ESG movement can really, the people engaged in it can feel good because they're causing changes in corporate behavior, both in how they treat employees, respect for the environment, corporate governance rules are changing uh, as well. So regardless, we haven't talked about risk and return yet, but regardless, although we did touch on the risk a little bit, behavior is definitely changing. We have a whole chapter in the book that cites the academic evidence on that side. So we'll, we'll come back to the to the return side of things, um, you know, which you 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 talked about uh, in the book. I want to digress a little bit just on this uh, idea of um, you know changing how the sustainable investing actually makes a difference in the real world. Um, you know, our mutual friend Rick Ferry. I I, I watch you and Rick as debates on Twitter, shall we say? He recently, uh, you know, put this out there. I'll read this. And he says, 
don't be fool enough to believe that paying in more in fees for an ESG fund to exclude certain companies' stocks will make one iota of difference in the world. A better solution, he says, is to buy a dirt cheap total market index fund and donate the fee savings to whatever cause you believe in. Do you agree? No, I, one, I don't agree, and I can show you empirically Rick is wrong. <laughs> it's not a debate. <laughs> uh, the evidence from our book shows exactly what I just told you, that the higher ESG scores are directly impacting corporate behavior. So Rick maybe is not aware of that evidence. Now, I don't have a problem if someone says, I want to get the highest expected returns and then use those higher returns and donate directly, say the example I gave to help an African village get clean water, uh, you know, that's a different perspective. And we, we get to that point, the book has two chapters on the risk and return of ESG strategies, talking first what the academic theory or economic theory should tell you about when you invest in ESG and then what the empirical research does uh, say about it. And you're always nice to see when the theory aligns with the evidence, because one of the things I learned early on from Gene Farmer is when your evidence doesn't support your theory, you don't throw out the evidence, you throw out your theory. But the economic evidence aligns perfectly with the theory. Rick is definitely wrong that you're not having an impact. And there has to be some incremental costs to ESG investing because somebody's got to do the research to decide, you know, how to score a company. Now, that doesn't have to be a lot. ESG strategies may cost as little as a few basis points more, you know, or they could cost a lot more. I don't think you should have to pay a lot more, but you can you know, you should be willing, I think, to pay a little bit more because it definitely is having a big impact. Uh, I have no doubt Rick is wrong on that particular issue. What about the idea that, um, you know, the, the idea that just old the, you know, the, the shares of, uh, you know, public companies anyway and try to engage through voting, shareholders' resolution, and all these things. Is there any credit? There? Is there any, um, any evidence? Yeah, uh, you, activism on trying to get boards to change can work, but not necessarily. It's certainly a strategy, uh, and the pressure to get them to change can be supported by the academic research, which we've cited. If they change their behavior, in terms of being, say, a more diverse workforce, more pay equity, they'll attract better talent, their profitability will go up. If they act to protect the planet and invest more in green energy transitions, that should lower their cost of capital. So you could see actions. They're not mutually exclusive here. But what you're missing, and Rick, and I, you know, because I don't, you know, know his full statement, so I may not be stating it correctly. There are people who just feel that I don't want to express my values by investing in certain industries. It goes against my beliefs. So I'm not going to do what Rick says, even if I save a few basis points. So, you know, Rick's point is totally irrelevant, even if he's right, for those people. They're willing to pay a price to express their values. You know, again, I think Rick's wrong on the face of the facts because the evidence is clear that ESG investors are changing behaviors. So let's talk about returns then. What does the evidence say about the returns of, um, you know, an ESG portfolio or sustainable uh, funds, you know, compared to, say, um, you know, just the, the broad mainstream market indices, for instance. Right. So let's look at economic theory again. And it begins if, uh, with what we've already discussed, which is if 
a large enough group of investors screen out certain stocks or underweight them, for example, you're going to change the cost of capital. And therefore, you're going to have a higher expected return to those investors who have to hold their nose, take the risks, however you want to think about it. And in fact, the imperial evidence is very clear. I'm willing to bet, Abraham, that if you ask your investors or listeners to your podcast, which industries had the highest expected return or the highest returns in the last, say, 100 years, they would probably say technology and healthcare. Would you agree? <laughs> okay. They will, so, yes. The, re the, re the reality is that the highest returning industries in both the U.S. and the U.K., tobacco and alcohol, and you can add gaming in there. And that's because they have a higher cost of capital. In fact, someone did a study uh, on a, uh, a vice fund taking these SRI bad companies, and they outperform, depending upon period and benchmarks, 2 to 3% a year. So the empirical evidence lines up with theory. Now, if you're a Quaker, you might say, hey, I don't care. I'm willing to give up 3% a year. If, since I don't have to invest in those sin stocks. Somebody else might say, to Rick's point, I want to get the highest returns. I'm only going to buy those sin stocks. I'm going to have a very undiversified portfolio. I'm going to buy those sin stocks, and I'll take that extra 3% and devote it very specifically to the causes I want. There's no wrong answer, right? It's just a personal way to do it. But there's no doubt that when investors screen out or underweight industries, you raise the cost of capital, and then the people who do buy those stocks get the benefit of the higher expected returns. But they are also taking more risks of the kind we've already talked about, environmental spills, regulatory changes, consumer boycotts, fraud risks, etc. Okay, now, so what the evidence says very clearly is, own low or low ESG, the brown or sin stocks, you get higher expected returns. Own green, you get lower expected returns. However, that's in a world where call it all else is equal. But we're in what uh, I would call a dynamic equilibrium. So today we have seen a huge shift really since 2018 and maybe even a bit more before that as we mentioned earlier, tens of billions of dollars are flowing in. So it's driving up the value of green stocks, their PEs, driving down, relatively speaking, the brown stock PEs. That's changing things in a way, because when you drive up valuations, you drive up current returns, right? And, but you lower future expected returns because you're not changing in the earnings. Think of the dot-com era. And you started out with companies saying having average expected returns of say 10%, but these dot-com stocks returned say 30% a year over the next five years because valuations were going up. And then of course, things can't grow to the sky and you had the bubble burst and they collapsed. So you had much lower expected returns. Up until 2018, the brown stocks outperformed significant, let's call it 2 to 3% a year. From 2018 through 2020, despite the fact that brown stocks had higher expected returns, green stocks outperformed by 7% a year. That's a big, and that was totally due to these cash flows driving up their valuations. It's a good paper we cited in the book called Dynamic Equilibrium. There are others that have found the same thing. So what you had is an ex-ante, let's say, just as an example, minus a two or 3% expected return. You got plus seven, so nine to 10% extra came from those rising valuations. But now that X anti premium has gotten bigger. So brown stocks have even higher expected returns. Now, the thing is this, we're in this transition where today in the US, 
about a third of assets are invested in green strategies. Outside the U.S., it's about 50%. The surveys taken expect that to, within the next 15 years to get to something like 75 to 80% if people follow through on what they said. So that can mean that until we get that equilibrium, enough money is coming into green to at least offset that negative premium. And green can even maybe outperform or at least match the returns and have less risk at the same time. So you could get to eat your cake and have it too, getting the same or better returns with less risk, at least until that new equilibrium is reached. But once we get there, and then the new flows into ESG slow down or even stop net, and you get 80-20, let's say, 80% is invested ESG and 20 doesn't care, then you should expect a much bigger ESG negative premium as a penalty for expressing those values. But again, you will have less risk. So that's important to understand. Uh, if you're going to own those brown stocks, you're going to have more risk, but you're compensated with higher expected returns. And again, no right answer, as we explain in the book. You choose your values, how you want to express it. And again, you can choose to do best in class, which avoids some of the negatives because you don't screen out, say, all the energy stocks. One last point. The research also shows, uh, as I've talked about in all my other books, that value companies outperform growth companies over the long term for the same reason. Investors don't like the risk of value companies, and therefore they have higher costs of capital, lower P.E. ratios. Okay. If you tilt an ESG portfolio and say, first, we're going to screen out using this best-in-class approach, not screening out entire industries. And then here is the group of stocks we want to hold. And then I'm going to tilt that portfolio to overweight the cheapest value companies, the highest quality, higher profitability companies within there, factors that have had historically higher returns. You can eliminate that or at least minimize that you know the holding of green, that greenium, the lower expected return, by tilting the portfolio. And once you do that, you basically solve that problem. But you have to be willing to not look like the market. You can't look like Rick Ferry's portfolio because then your expected returns are definitely below the market. So now, and there are fund families like Dimensional that run relatively cheap not as cheap as Vanguard's index fund that Rick refers to, but still relatively cheap. Uh, and they tilt to these factors and they use this best in sector approach. And that still keeps you highly diversified because you're in every industry and you're tilting towards these factors that over the long term have higher expected return. I think that's a really good way to express your values, but again, all personal decisions. So this is really fascinating, uh, uh, Larry, and and insightful. So thank you for for um, you know this. One one tongue in cheek question I have for you is: Do do you know you don't happen to know how long it would take to take you know to get to this equilibrium that you talked about? Because uh, you know if if an individual doesn't care about um, um, you know, the environment and the world, you know, maybe they just sit on the bad, uh, on the brown stocks uh, until the equilibrium is, is reached uh, and suffer the pain. Yeah, nobody has a clear crystal ball on that. Uh, my best guess is given this massive movement and the younger generation is going to inherit from my generation over the next 10, 15, 20 years. I, I, I don't think this is a 50-year process. I think it's probably somewhere 10 to 20 years, and then we'll have that new equilibrium. Uh, all of the headlines that you see on hurricanes and other issues related to global warming and droughts, I think are going to push more people 
to think about those risks and invest that way. And that means like from 2018 through 2020, you had a, in effect, 7% outperformance when you should have expected a slight underperformance. I don't know that that kind of thing could continue, but maybe it could be enough that they'll at least match or, you know, uh, the returns of the brown stocks and overcome that premium. But remember, as we move to that new equilibrium, that brown premium is getting bigger and bigger. So it gets harder to overcome that. But again, it's all about risk and return and expressing your values and finding where those three issues come together for you, Abraham, personally. No right answer for these things. And I, I certainly, I do like a lot of your ideas about looking for the uh, green value and small as a way to close that gap, you know, in the long run, in the very long term, about between, shall we say, brown stocks and, and, and green stocks. Exactly. That's the way I would recommend most investors who want to express their values can go about doing it because one, you have a much more diversified portfolio, which is better. Certainly this year, if you're not owning energy companies, you're underperforming, right? Uh, and that's a problem. And again, I don't think you want to logically screen out companies who are actually helping this transition to a greener planet, right? Uh, and then if you tilt the portfolio to the factors that historically have shown evidence of higher returns, you can make up for some of that without screening out entire industries. So to me, that's sort of the ideal kind of middle ground, if you will, uh, that people can find. But I would never blame somebody who says, I don't want to own any tobacco company. I don't want to own any oil company, that's your right to express your personal views. That's, that's fascinating stuff. Now, am I right to assume that, you know, sustainable in investing itself doesn't actually change your asset allocation? I think this is one of the things you covered in the book, uh, in the implementation side of things. It, it can change your allocation. If you do sustainable investing using negative screening and screening out entire industries, that would change your, your diversification, therefore your allocation. But you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to change the bigger picture. So if you want to be 60% stocks and 40% bonds, you could do that in ESG or non-ESG way. But within the equity universe, it can impact your allocation. Uh, depending upon whether you're using best in class or negative screening or a total market approach, then you're going to get three different outcomes. So, you know, a total market approach is going to have no exposure to size, value, profitability, quality. That's okay if that's what you want. It's the cheapest way to, to, to invest, but you're missing out on expected returns by doing so. Incredible stuff. So, uh, Larry, I know you've you've written a book on retirement, and um, and um, you know you, you're there. We go. Yeah, yes, uh, you know, fa fascinating one. I I have a copy as well, and and I'm gonna get you back on the podcast to to explain you know to explore that a little bit more. But this is a podcast about retirement, about retirement planning, and we've looked at investing side of things. Um, but I want to get a little bit more personal. So personally, yourself, you still continue to, to, to carry on to, um, you know, bang the drum on evidence-based investing. Age has got nothing on you. How are you personally thinking about retirement, retirement planning, investing, that sort of thing? Yeah, well, uh, when I sat down to write that book on retirement, I consider myself, if you will, an expert on the investment side, but retirement includes lots of other things 
including planning a life in retirement, which sadly most people don't plan for. It includes lots of other issues that related to managing of risk, meaning healthcare, life insurance, all kinds of other risks, the, the need for long-term care, for example, the risk of being mentally incapacitated with something like Alzheimer's, dementia. Uh, women have different issues. So I recruited an all-star team, if you will, to help me write the chapters of the book, uh, which I then work with them on editing. And the first chapter of the book is, because well, I think it's the most important for most people, is how do you plan a life in retirement? Uh, and so one of the things you want to make sure you don't do is you don't plan to retire from life, just, just maybe work. Uh, so uh, my passion is to help educate investors in what I think is the prudent way to invest, to keep them from making um, many investment mistakes the typical investor make. I wrote a book in the early 2000s, Investment Mistakes Even Smart People Make, covered 77 mistakes. Uh, and if I wrote it today, it'd probably be more like 90 <laughs> uh, mistakes. So I, I continue to work. I'm now going to be 71 this year. I uh, continue to write. I write for three websites, Alpha Architect, uh, Advisor Perspectives, and the Evidence-Based Investor. Three great websites for those interested in the investment and financial planning side of things. And I'm just presenting the academic research, not my opinions, about what is the prudent strategy for investing. Larry Swedro, thank you very much for your wisdom. Thank you for the impact that you've made in, in the profession, you know, certainly on me and many others out there. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure, Abraham. Look forward to coming back and talking about that retirement planning. Absolutely. Thank you. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.